Welcome to the All About Alts podcast, where we explore the world of alternative investing to help you find financial independence. Join our host, Newview Trust's president, Jason DeBono, as he covers a variety of topics with different guest speakers to discuss tax and alternative investing strategies. It is never too late to start taking control of your financial future, and we are so excited for you to be joining us for this opportunity to hear from some of the best in the business. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the All About Alts podcast. I am your host, Jason DeBono. Excited to be here. Uh, we've got a great guest today, a, a former infantry combat veteran of the Marines. Thank you, Michael, for your service, uh, but just an absolute pro in the private lending space as well. Uh, so we're going to talk about all things lending, uh, both on the commercial and residential, as well as the traditional and the private space. So lot to cover today. Michael Abbott, MoneyStream Financial, Great to have you on the show. How are you? I'm doing great, Jason. Thank you so much for having me today. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, you know, I I love always love good stories and backgrounds, and and going through Michael's was another one uh, where I'm always like, gosh, how the heck do, do people find time to do all the things that they do and accomplish all the things that they've accomplished? And uh, at the risk of maybe making Michael blush, you know, let me just share some highlights so we know kind of the pedigree of of who we're chatting with. Um, I mentioned 10 years in the Marine Corps. Uh, Michael, thank you for your service. And 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 I'm sure there's a lot of the, that 10 years that plays into your personal and professional life every day uh, as you continue to, to, to move out of kind of the, the service uh, and into a professional career. Uh, 20 years in, in lending, um, including both you know, traditional loans and private loans, uh, serves on the political action committee uh, for the Florida Association of Mortgage um, professionals, sits on the boards of nonprofits. Uh, and somehow in all of that, he finds time to eat, sleep, uh, and, uh, and do some of the normal casual things that people do. But, um, yeah, what you got a lot going on, Michael. And, and if that's not enough, you also run MoneyStream financial. Uh, for, fortunately, I've got a good team and a lot of support. And, uh, you know, so I, I look at the opportunity to serve as not just maybe what someone might do in the military. You know, for me, for example, the political action committee for the Florida Association of Mortgage Professionals is an opportunity to serve our our industry and the consumers. And, uh, um, you know, the nonprofit activities, it all kind of plays together. I don't, I don't have a, I guess I don't have a separate private and personal life, if that makes sense. I love what I do. And uh, so I'm able to dedicate time and I have a very supportive uh, staff and a supportive family. Well, those two things are certainly critical and and those things don't happen by accident, right? I'm sure a lot of deliberate efforts goes uh, into building that. And I think that's something we talk about a lot on the show is, um, you know, what what are you doing to build your personal and professional career? And, and uh, you know, I think it's interesting. I love what you said. A lot of people kind of feel like it's work-life balance and it's post-COVID and, you know, life comes before work. And and I, I really appreciate the sentiment that that it created. But I wholeheartedly disagree that those two things are mutually exclusive. Um, I think people learn that they don't need to work 100 hours every single week and, and they can cut that down and we can be more deliberate and productive. Um, but work and life go hand in hand. They almost have to if you're trying to build a career and build a business um, because you can't just wake up and do this when it's convenient. You know, you're, you're taking calls and fielding calls from whether it's your team, whether it's your, your clients, 
you know, 24 hours a day. And, and on a, on a good day, we get it to 12 or 14, but, but the, the needs and wants of our consumers don't go away. Yeah. And that's, that's the beauty. But, um, so let's start there. You know, you're, you're, you, you started originating loans, uh, you know, back in, in, uh, in 2000. So, you know, entering into the nearly 24th year of, of kind of being in the industry and, and you've worked your way, um, you know, up into building a company, which is super cool. Love that story. Um, because I think a lot of people, you know, they, they may be starting a career and, and they don't make it their own, right? Not that everyone has to. Um, so let's talk a little bit about that kind of what was, you know, that point where you said, Hey, I love, I know enough about mortgages and I'm willing to take that leap and start my own company and kind of build my own lending business. What was there a, an epiphany that happened? Was it an aha moment or was it just kind of an organic thing that slowly happened? And, and you're not quite sure where it started, but here we are. I think it's like a lot of things in our business and our careers, it's an evolution. Um, I was really fortunate when I got out of the Marine Corps and I, I ended up getting a master's in finance. I really had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, you know, in terms of what aspect of finance and I ended up falling into a, an opportunity, by just really by happenstance where I was working with an incubator, um, which is a firm that's established for the perm and this one specifically helping women and minority owned businesses with this. Process. And so they were a full spectrum firm and they had some, they had a CPA, they had an attorney, they had legals and so on. And I came in specifically with the task of, of helping arrange SBA for a business startup might mean creating the financials and the projections, um, you know, helping them through that process. And then it, during tax season, help, you know, helping with overflow tax work. And, you know, so, so it became, I, be, I guess it gave me a very wide base um, and it was a smaller firm. So there was, you know, you walk into again, here's your job description. Description. You know, in this case, my job description was whatever had to be done at the moment. So I developed a, a slightly more rigid environment being in the military for, for uh, you know, about 10 years. I went in when I was 17. Um, you know, so my formative years were military and um, infantry at that. So all of a sudden I was in this very entrepreneurial environment and, you know, very flexible and kind of something had to get done. You just figured out how to do it. So, uh, you know, I, I learned, I learned a lot. Um, I learned not to be afraid to take risks. Um, or, you know, and back then there wasn't quite so much Google, um, you know, as, as we have today, but you know, I learned how to do legal research or paralegal research or tax research to figure stuff out. And that's really served me well. And, and if, I mean, if I was ever going to talk to a a younger person thinking about what they want to do in their career, I guess the first thing I would say is never, um, you know, never sell yourself short or put yourself in a specific box, um, explore, you know, grow and explore and um, have that entrepreneurial mindset. Even if you're working for a company, have that entrepreneurial mindset. I love that advice. It, and it's spot on, you know, too many people today, they, they want to know where the box that they, that they operate in. And it's like, if you want to put yourself in a box, you're never going to get out of that box. And uh, it, it may sound really good and role clarity is important, but uh, being able to, to do more things and, and cut your teeth, sometimes it's just the overcoming the fear, 
you know, and, and challenge of it. And if you're going to be a business owner, um, you better learn to do everything because there is no, uh, you know, you, as you grow your business, you know, you can start to delegate and elevate and, and put people in a position to take some of that stuff on. But, uh, you know, I'd be willing to bet even with a great team today, you know, you're head cook and bottle washer. And it just depends on the day as, as to where the needs are. And, and you got to be able to, uh, is it adjust, adapt and improvise? Is that the... Uh, Am I getting that Im right? Improvise, adapt, and overcome. Improvise, and overcome. adapt, and go. overcome. And yeah, that's a that's a good a good old movie quote that um, you know from that. Uh, gosh, what was it? Heartbreak Ridge, right? With uh, with Gunny Highway, uh, Clint Eastwood, and uh, yeah, that and that's become. I don't think that's automatic for most people. You know, we're not we're not bred that way. We don't grow up in school to improvise, adapt and overcome. You grow up in school, you're trained to, to find the right answer and, you know, solve that, solve that specific problem. And, you know, so I think that learning how to stretch your mind and stretch your roles is a big part of what allows people to become more successful. And, you know, maybe in an entrepreneurial environment, but I would argue that if you're, you know, if you work for a company and you don't have an entrepreneurial mindset, you're making a mistake. We're all self-employed at the end of the day. We're, we're all self-employed. Even if you have a company, it's still you. It's franchise you. That's right. Well, and that moniker of think like an owner, um, it, it does matter. you know. And, and when you start to think like an owner, your mentality shifts. And it doesn't mean that, that you can understand exactly how the business runs and operates or that thinking like an owner means you become the owner. Um, but it's a good place to, to start. So, so let's talk about, you know, kind of let's like carry forward this stories, right? So you're, you're in this kind of an interesting place. You're on the incubator side, right? You're, you, you are working for a company that's helping people start businesses and working through that process. And, and, and I'll just say, I think incubators are amazing. And, and I think anyone considering going into any business or starting a business should be taking advantage. A lot of these resources are free. Um, you know, to a lot of people are very low cost. So um, just a shameless plug for incubators. But so, you know, how did you end up on the lending side? And, and how did you kind of end up with MoneyStream Financial and, and kind of starting that? Um, you know, what, uh, what, what was the impetus behind it? Well, I had, I had the opportunity to uh, maybe have a forced change there. Um, there was a change in ownership in in that in that uh firm and uh let changed. i was it was about 2002 ish um ju it just became a very uh maybe maybe mercenary type aggressive you know thing try to turn a profit on every activity um, which i don't have a problem i'm a capitalist and i believe in you know we we are all here to make money but at the same time it was the mentality changed and like where it was going um i had a very close friend who was at that time a retail uh residential mortgage originator um, working for a lender and just over some drinks he's like hey why don't you you know you're doing these sba loans you have this financial background why don't you come work with me um so we, you know, I, I jumped O2, um, FHA, um, you know, really just learned there was a T in the word mortgage kind of, you know, it's, it was, I had no mortgage background aside from doing SBA and they're very different things. And so, uh, I got started and about six months in and he, um, 
about six months in, uh, you know, tragedy, he he got cancer and, and died over a period of about a month and a half um, just from from feeling sick. It was uh, respiratory. It was in his lungs to to the funeral it was about a month and a half. And, um, you know, so so I learned a few things about life at the tender age of in my early 30s, um, you know, about the, you know, take every moment. And that was a big philosophical understanding for me. But from a business perspective, I discovered that, you know, because he was the one who kind of had the inherent knowledge. So I was now going to the branch manager and saying, you know, okay, do this. And the branch manager's answer was always to reach behind him, grab a binder off the shelf and say, yeah, that, you know, read this. And, and, and it never told you, never had the real information. So taking the entrepreneurial mindset, I went to a school, a mortgage academy where, um, where I, I went for six weeks in Atlanta. I, I live in the Orlando area. So I went up to Atlanta for six weeks, attended this resident course where I you know, learned originating, learned processing, underwriting, sales and marketing. And up until that point, my mentality was that I was not a salesperson. I was a financial professional. And, um, and so I discovered that sales is part of it. And so I, I, I evolved and changed a little bit my mentality. Um, and as I was trying to grow that mortgage business, interestingly enough, I discovered um, one that you are always self-employed because it's those it commission, you know, type work. You're always in sales. And um, the other thing that I learned is that not to be a not to be a commodity. Um, if you do what everyone else does, and if you're the same as everyone else, um, then then you're just, you're in a bidding war. You're a commodity, right? I can get gas at the, the Wawa or the 7-Eleven or the, you know, Circle K. It's all pretty much the same. So which one has the best prices where I'm going to go? And so I developed a mentality of being a, you know, being more of a financial advisor, being people with the big picture, understanding the implications of this mortgage transaction, which for most people was their biggest asset, their home. Um, and for most people, it's their biggest liability, the mortgage that they have on their home. So, you know, kind of helping them plan that in the bigger spectrum in a holistic viewpoint. And so over the years, that kind of evolved. Uh, again, I had a lucky break. I was, I was known at the time I was doing, I started doing that. And as I was getting out of the Marine Corps, I was buying and selling and flipping. I was selling a house that I owned. I knew about the mortgage world, obviously, because I was in there. And um, so selling a house, this was back in the old days, right? In like, oh, three, maybe where you'd sit at the closing table and everybody was there, realtors, sellers, buyers, you know, they're all there signing their documents. And the, um, I didn't have a realtor representing me. I had just, I just put it on the, you know, listed it uh, for sale. And um, the buyer had a question about his loan. It was one of those exotic, if you remember the subprime days, uh, oh, yeah. you know, it was, a, it was a little bit of an odd loan. And, and he's like, I don't understand what I'm signing title. The, you know, the closer from the title company is not allowed to explain it. I mean, she tried to answer some questions, but she was, you know, tiptoeing his realtor was trying to answer. She didn't know. And so he's trying to call his mortgage broker. Can't get a hold of the mortgage broker. Now I'm seeing my closing fall apart, you know, and I'm getting nervous about, you know, I don't really want this transaction to close. So I pulled his realtor aside and I said, Hey, listen, I do have a mortgage background and I'm comfortable explaining 
the logistics of this specific type of loan program, if that's okay with you. And she said, absolutely, no, no problem. And so I walked him through it. It was what was called an option arm, which um, sometimes they called it a pick a pay back then. You know, you could pick your different payment amounts. I explained it. Closing went through. After closing, the realtor said, um, hey, gosh, I've, I've heard of that loan. No one's ever explained it with such simplicity and clarity. Um, can you write a little article about that? My husband publishes a magazine. So I wrote a little article. A little article uh, got put in six different magazines for, um, it turns out he, his, the husband was, her husband was a content provider for um, several big in, investor and, you know, public speaking groups. You know, some of those names you would probably recognize like Tony Robbins and Zig Ziglar, um, Trump University, the Robert Allen Network and so on. And so she said, would you like to, you know, would you keep writing article for us once a month? And, um, and so of course I did. And I started getting invited to these events and they would, they would send me an, an invitation. I'd get a call. The first one was in Vegas and I didn't have a lot of money. I was, you know, really just kind of starting out. So I get this call and they're, you know, Hey, this is so-and-so from such and such group. Uh, wondering if you, if you would be interested in coming to speak at an event in Vegas, you know, we, ex we expect there's gonna be about 4,000 people. You'll do some breakout sessions and that sort of thing. So long story short, I'm, I'm thinking, oh man, I don't know if I can afford the, you know, how many nights in the hotel. I'm trying to do the math while I'm on the phone. I don't want to say no, but right. I'm trying to figure it out. And then she said, so I'm like, well, I have to check my schedule. She said, well, let me know because we're going to need to make your reservations. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, reserve your plane ticket and all that stuff. And I'm realizing, oh, wait, they're going to pay for all my expenses. So that was how that started. I started going to these events, generating kind of a little bit of a global following. And back then you could do residential mortgages anywhere. Um, you know, and I worked, I put my residential mortgages through a large national bank that I was a branch manager for. I was the only loan officer in the branch. I owned a little commercial building. They rented I had six offices in this little building. They rented three of them, one for me, one for my processor and one for my two assistants. So uh, I owned the building. I was collecting rent being paid for me to rent, to use my own space. And uh, so it worked out pretty well. Um, it was an interesting path. And of course, 2007 and eight, uh, the lending world changed dramatically. So my, my focus had been construction loans and investor loans for the most part, because that's what the appetite was at types of events. Um, and then of course, in, they say 2008 was the crash. I, I could, for, for me, the crash actually happened in December of 2007. Uh, my entire pipeline of business dissolved um, because that was the type of lending that it was. And when that happened, I had to make some very fast adjustments uh, moved back quickly into, you know, private and hard money and SBA focused on that, which we had been continuing to do and um, evolved. As a matter of fact, in 2008, I swore I would never do another residential mortgage again in my life. Um, never say never because we still do them, uh, but it's a very different model for us now. Well, you, you know, anyone that's been in, in real estate in any capacity has certainly seen the world change. Uh, you know, if you started in this anytime after 2000 and, and you went through kind of the crash, it was a I won't say unprecedented because I think history, you know, 
continues to repeat itself and and uh, but it was just unprecedented in the fact that everything just came to such a screeching halt it seemed like literally overnight and uh, I started in in this business in 2005 and you know I remember 2007 you know vividly in 2008 and um, on the lending side I mean you saw it even further uh, ahead than most people you know you're a very strong leading indicator of economics um, which, you know, tells us a lot about, you know, if, if you're not putting in, if you're not getting loan applications today, you're not closing properties in 30 days. Right. And so you're a little bit further out in front. Right. So you really saw it from ground zero. Um, let's fast forward and, and, uh, and just, you know, maybe wrap this kind of first half of the show up with, with this question is fast forward to, to 2000 and, you know, we'll, we'll call it 2020, January, February, right. Pre-COVID. And and walk us through, you know, as a lender, you know, you, you had the first kind of catastrophic thing that occurred to, to everybody, which was COVID. And, um, you know, mm-hmm. as much as everybody thought that was going to be, you know, the, the recession driver, real estate was going to, you know, go go to hell in a handbasket. The market was going to crash. Businesses were going to implode. I mean, it, it was a scary time. And and you couple all that with all the health you know, related issues that we were learning um, as we went through it. Yet real estate did the opposite, right? Um, real estate took off. It was like it, it It was like a rocket ship that was already midair, you know, got an entirely new thruster and just shot through the moon. And then interest rates start climbing. So walk us through that. What have you seen? What's been the behavioral patterns of of kind of the consumer and and kind of where do you think we are today what inning of this game are we in and and where are we it's a great question so uh interestingly and there and there's there's really two different markets that you know, when we say lending there's really residential and then within the commercial subset there's 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 even some granularity in there so first off you know January, February, 2020, obviously that was pre-COVID. Things were normal, right? You know, rates were normal. Things were normal. Life was normal. Um, there were no zombies walking around. Um, you know, it was pre, I call it, you know, the zombie apocalypse, right? Um, you know, so it was kind of a normal environment, status quo, nothing crazy. When, obviously when COVID happened, you know, let's say March, right, of, uh, of 2020, when it really it really came to fruition with it. People started getting furloughed and, and, um, and all of that. There was, you know, kind of a, for, in my mind, uh, I went to battle stations in my mind because I had a little flashback to, you know, December of, of, of 2007. And, and, and cause you don't know how the market's going to react. You don't know what's going to happen. And so my advice at that moment to everybody in earshot was, you know, batten down the hatches, make sure you're in a sustainable position. You know, I'm a, I'm a Floridian. So, you know, we can say hunker down, you know, which is what we do during a hurricane that we don't evacuate for. Right. You know, board up the windows, whatever you got to do. And, um, and then slowly, you know, within, I don't know, by late spring, early summer, things started to stabilize. Right. You know, um, we realized, okay, the world didn't end and interest rates started plummeting. And that was financial decisions. You know, the federal reserve has two, they have two knobs, right? 
liquidity where, where they can quantitative easing and quantitative tightening. And that's just how much money they print in the basement of the White House and how much they shred. And it's literally that, how much money they put on the street in, in an oversimplification, right? And then they have the Fed funds rate. Well, so they, they kind of pegged those knobs, right? Dropped the rate, dropped the rate, dropped the rate and, uh, you know, started printing money real fast. And so all of a sudden there was all this free, cheap, easy money. Commercial rates went down significantly and um, residential rates. Obviously, everybody knows what happened there. Everybody with a, you know, two and a half, three percent interest rate on their house. So um, it was a boom in that sense. And it created a feeding frenzy, but it created some unexpected problems. Um, one is on the commercial side, which I think is the biggest concern I have uh, for for our current situation. Re uh, commercial rates are always based on the property cash flow, right? If you look at an office building and you say, what's this worth? It's not like a house where they just, you know, this is my house, I'm living in it and I know it's worth, you know, 1.5 million and, you know, the price went up because whatever. Commercial is always based on how does that property cash flow? So I own an office building and I can collect X in rent. Well, th then there's just formulaic determination of the value. Well, the problem is, when money's super cheap and the commercial lending guidelines were standard, were normal, um, people got over leveraged in like office buildings, that sort of thing, right? My, my rate is low. That increases the value because the property cash flows better. Um, fast forward, post-COVID post now, fast forward to Silicon Valley Bank as a kind of a benchmark, right? Last year, um, little bank exploded and um, all of the regional and smaller banks in this country, which is a lot of the co the commercial money comes from, said, oh crap, um, you know, we better tighten up because we don't want Uncle Sam to come in and take over or force a merger or, you know, hope that we're gonna get a bailout or something like that. So they tightened up their lending guidelines. And in the meantime, interest rates were moving up right? Because in, in interest rates move up in response often to inflation. So we had inflationary pressure, interest rates moved up. So now all of a sudden that office building that let's pretend it's, you know, it has a, a million dollar loan on it. Now, all of a sudden with a seven to 9% commercial interest rate, occupancy is lower. There's more vacancies that maybe they can't, that, that million dollar loan, no bank will give them more than 600,000 refi commercial loans are written as a balloon, a three, five, seven year balloon. So now we have a growing default of performing loans. They're, they're still making their payments, but technically they're in default. And so that's the alarm bell that we're seeing kind of in today's economy in today's environment that we all need to kind of keep an eye on. Um, residential is, um, more resilient of a market because people got to live somewhere. But COVID taught us one thing. We can work from home. We can work from home in our home office just as efficiently as we can work from an office space. So commercial office leases have, have trended downward, um, you know, even more so in some of the, you know, big areas. Retails because there's so many you know, on-demand deliverable shopping systems that we all learned during COVID. Let's do, you know, whatever, 
you know, I don't want to say Amazon, but I guess I'll say Amazon and, you know, Timu and all these other things have, have started to change the way people shop. So that's a, that's a concern. I think residential is the, is going to be the anchor for, for our economy. Um, demand hasn't, ter hasn't slowed down terribly. I mean, it's, there's a little bit of a, little bit of a slowdown, but there, there's still a shortage in most metropolitan areas, in most areas, there's a housing shortage. There's an affordable housing shortage. Um, which is a huge issue, not and that's not low income housing. I'm just talking about affordable housing, you know, for school teachers, firefighters, and you know, plumbers are having a hard time finding that, you know, whatever the price range is in in any given market in Central Florida. That's the, you know, three to four hundred thousand range. There's a shortage of houses in that range, and they're still selling fairly fast. So I don't know if that answered your question or if I went down a rabbit hole. But uh, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of dynamics in the market today that are, um, I think, being misinterpreted. You know, people think there's going to be a housing crash or a housing bubble because they're they're flashing back to 2007 or eight. You know, it's a very different market. There's a lot of equity in houses. There's a lot of, um, you know, the lending guidelines have been much tighter through through the 2000s, you know, than they were in the early 2000s where people were getting 100% financing with no income verification and things like that. Now, people are that, that are in a house are typically really qualified for that house. And and on average, they have, you know, maybe triple the amount of equity that homeowners had in 2007 when the market corrected. Let's call it that. It was a liquidity crisis, not a housing crash. So don't know if I answered your question, Jason, or if I went down a rabbit hit, rabbit hole, but um, that's that's the that's my opinion. No, I, listen, I uh, I love asking questions that really don't have a, a direction because it's you know, you're in this every day. And, and I think you highlighted some things that really are important and critical uh, for, for us as consumers to think about, certainly on the commercial side. Um, you know, understanding the correlation between rates and value. You know, we don't tend to look at home prices around the rate of mortgage versus the value. It's unrelated. Um, but in commercial, right, which is we tend to think of commercial mm -hmm. as like office buildings. But I mean, apartment buildings are considered commercial. Right. And, and apartment buildings mm -hmm. are probably, uh, I would say, the, the number one place for affordable housing in in any sort of residential right. environment even though it's considered a commercial loan and so you know there are a lot of questions and and as these rates reset in 24 and 25 you know are they going to be able to get the value out of them to truly refinance and will the rates being up and the cap rates being uh you know changing will those cause issues so yeah a lot to watch and and then you know what's its impact on the silicon valleys uh of the world and and these regional lenders that hold a lot of this paper um so you know, th those are all dominoes. And, and I think, you know, when you talk about economics, uh, you know, dominoes are going to fall, right? It, it just happens and everything's on some cycle, whether it's uh, forecastable or not, you know, everything, nothing goes up forever, right? Um, I, I'm reminded of a, a, a guy I had a lot of respect for. He was a, a, a finance, financer type individual, packaged up a lot of investment deals. And he said, just remember one thing about investing in money. He said, it's the, the best advice I ever got. It's like when you were a kid and you stood around with your friends and uh, you guys all put as much big league chew or bubble gum or whatever it was in your mouth and blew bubbles. You know, he said, there's just one thing that happened every single time. And that is the bubble popped. 
And he said, sometimes they got really big and burst and, and it was a mess. Sometimes they didn't get that big and kind of slowly let out air. You know, he said, but you can learn a lot from just the different type of bubbles that all your friends, you know, blew with their bubble gum and the way that they all kind of came back. Um, and then you chew it back up and you blow another bubble, right? Uh, and and the bubble may look differently right. next time. And so I, I, I kind of can't help but keep going back to that is, you know, I don't know whether the bubble's going to burst, right? And we're going to have gum everywhere, whether it is going to slowly leak air and and then kind of put itself back together. But I think anytime you're in economics and dealing with finance and money and market conditions, especially when you've got, I won't call it manipulation, but you've got people with levers, and I love your analogy, right? Turning them, you never quite know what's going to happen. Um, and so it's it's important to make sure that you're aware of it. And then using that to shape your investment strategy going forward, because one thing, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll kind of wrap this up with this comment is, you can't wait for economic cycles by sitting on the sideline, right? You can temporarily pause, right? Hey, I'm going to step aside and figure this out. But there are people that have been sitting in cash for four years because they just assumed a bubble was going to break and you can't time the market. And we'll talk about that on, in, in the second half of our show today. And I love where we're going. Um, we're going to take a quick break uh, over to quirky questions of the day. My favorite part. I uh, love putting people on the hot seat and hearing what our readers are submitting. Uh, Amy is bringing them over. We're going to go top envelope today. Thank you, Amy. Um, remember, you can submit your quirky questions to allaboutalts at newviewtrust.com and uh, keep those coming. But we're going to, uh, yeah, let's get right to it. And, and, uh, and then let's, let's close the show out with some talk about private lending and, and what people are doing today. Um, all right, Michael, you ready? I'm ready. Bring it on. All right. If you could instantly learn to play any musical instrument, which one are you choosing? Acoustic guitar, because... Girls always like that. Good answer. And my good, son is a good answer. Guitar player, and he has tried to teach me, and uh, these fingers just don't do the right stuff. So, well, I am convinced with music that uh, that that is a a both skill based talent and a God given talent, and fortunately. Uh, you know, for some they got it. Unfortunately for me, there is not a single shred of musical talent in anything I do. Um, but I do, I'm with you. I would love to just pull out a guitar one time and just start playing. Uh, everybody loves it, which is super cool. All right. Are you going breakfast for dinner or dinner for breakfast? Breakfast always. I'm a breakfast. I'll eat, I'll eat an omelet all the time, but I might put a piece of steak with my omelet. So I don't know. Maybe that's a mix. Interesting. So you're going both, but, but if you've got, uh, oh, yeah. I'm you're going to put eggs with more meals than steak. Probably. All right. Question three, would you rather have the ability to speak every language fluently or communicate with animals? Wow. Um, every language fluently or communicate with animals. I mean, well, I, you know, I'm, trying, I'm trying to think of a way to say it. Like, you know, it, animals have their own language. So if I said every language fluently, maybe I could also communicate with animals. But um, I'm, a, I'm a lover of languages. I speak English. Um, I speak hillbilly, uh, which is what I grew up speaking. Um, I also, I speak Spanish pretty fluently. 
and um, was for a while, it's been 30 years, but when I was in the military, actually had a language code. I spoke conversational uh, Mandarin. Um, I, I guess I probably have to lean on the language thing because I, I do love. Well, you know, I love that question because it, it really drives to, would you rather talk to every human or would you rather talk to every animal? And you know, it depends on the day for me. Uh, some days I'm just over talking to humans and and uh, I think animals. But then again, I suppose if we talked to animals, we'd get over that process too. But um, all right, you're off the hot seat, Michael. Thank you guys for 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 awesome. submitting your questions. And uh, we'll we'll get back to kind of where we we just quickly dropped off there. And and you know, I think some of the more regular listeners of the show know. You know, I love private lending. Um, you know, I started doing private lending almost 20 years ago, uh, and, and I've lent through all market cycles. You know, I lent when things were good and bad, and I lent when, when interest rates were high and low. Um, but the one constant right. that, that I came back to is um, I love the asset class um, because, in my opinion, it's one of the few things that can have a fixed rate of return. And I say fixed, not guaranteed. Um, you, you know what it right. is up front. Uh, and then you can also dial up or dial down your collateral. Right. You know, it's it's like having this ability to to say, I want to be, you know, more protected or I'm willing to be less protected. And you can typically you can see a correlation between that that risk along with the reward, which is interest rates. So um, absolutely love private lending. I know that's a big piece of your business, something that you've been doing for a long time, you know, maybe just at a high level. You know, and we use the terms private money and hard money. Some of that's a little bit of jargon, right? But just for it, for the average person listening that doesn't know the difference, what's the difference between a traditional loan and a private or hard money loan? Great question. And there's a lot of confusion. And, and, and I speak with a lot of mortgage professionals all over the country um, in some of the workshops that I give. And truthfully, many times they're confused as well. So obviously the, the lay person... Um, has every right to be confused. And so um, the, the the first thing, there's there's traditional mortgages or what we would call a qualified mortgage. And there's some very specific definitions associated with that that I'm not going to bore you with the, the nuances, but a qualified mortgage, think of it as your you know, conventional or your government like FHA, USDA, VA loan used to purchase a house that you're going to live in for the most part. And their fixed rate they have no negative amortization and things like that. So it's kind of a normal mortgage. That's a convention government qualified mortgage. You're seeing, if you remember back to 06, 07, 05, you know, there were all these, we called them subprime or alt A mortgages back then. That's that's kind of grown back, not so much in the subprime world, but kind of the, the equivalent of alt A today is non-QM. And again, and these are non-qualified mortgages, which could be um, alternative income documentation. Maybe we're using bank statements, their deposits averaged out over a period of time, uh, modified by a factor, right? So they deposited an average of $10,000 a month. They're self-employed. We're going to use 50% of those deposits to calculate their income. That's kind of a non-QM or what we used to call alt-A or alternative um, you know, uh, mortgages. So those are typically still traditional mortgages. They're offered by banks or lenders, you know, big mortgage companies that have their box and they get their money. They're originated by people who work for the bank, people who work for the lender or mortgage brokers that represent those institutions to, or represent the client to those institutions. Um, 
that's traditional mortgages. Now, going down into what's a private mortgage, private mortgage is something you typically hear in lending, uh, investment lending or commercial lending. And, and truly by definition, um, and so there's a little bit of a misnomer here that happens, a private lending comes from a, a non-bank owned lending institution. So I make the differentiation institutional private lenders. And those are companies often, they may have a hedge fund behind them or warehouse lines or a family trust um, that they're, that they're representing. And they are more truly a lender. They're, you know, they have, they have a website, they have a closing department sometimes, things like that, right? Um, that's institutional private lending. And then I think obviously what you and I are more talking about is what I would call non-institutional private lending, which is, in some cases, you know, it's a company like mine going to a guy like Jason and saying, hey, got this deal. Uh, are you interested in funding it? Here's the parameters and the terms. And in that case, you are you're funding the deal. And, and maybe a company like MoneyStream Financial is representing you and arranging and packaging the loan for the borrower, servicing it and that sort of thing and paying the return. Um, true private lending is, hey, Uncle Henry, um, you know, can I get some money? And, you know, and he participates in that deal. And, and so it's a spectrum. There's not a clear cut, in my opinion, not a clear cut specific definition. It's more, you know, a spectrum, you know. So when we talk about Institutional private lending, these are programs and guidelines and, you know, standard matrices, you know, product matrix and matrix and things like that. Um, we do arrange those loans. So we represent, you know, commercial lending institutions. We represent, you know, small business administration, you know, so on and so forth. We represent those loans, arrange those loans, sell those loans, package them, so on and so forth. But on the private, private side, um, what we call just because it gets so confusing, even for us, who is this? This is a private lender. So rather than, uh, so a Jason of the world says, Hey man, I, you know, I got X number of something like this. And we say, man, I'd love to, I'd love to partner with you on this, on these transactions. So we call them a funding partner. And so that's our nomen, a person who, you know, maybe they have some, you know, some, some self-directed funds, or they just, you know, they got money in the bank and they say, you know, yeah, I'd like to invest. I've got, you know, $500,000 or I've got $2 million. Um, and then what we do in conversation, we'll say, all right, you know, how do you feel about loan sizes? You know, if you've got $500,000, do you want to bang that out in one deal? Or are you looking for, you know, splitting that up as many deals as possible? What's your risk tolerance? Um, what kind of returns are you looking for? And then as we let's call it intake. It's a very, it's not a mechanical problem. Individuals, people are different. Everybody has their own, you know, uh, decision-making matrix. And, you know, we'll talk about what are you comfortable with? What do you, what do you like? What's your, what's your goal? I, I have some private, I've got a guy in California who uh, will lend pretty much anywhere except California. He doesn't want to lend in California and he's a, he lives there. He's, you know, and he'll do, you know, he's, we've been working together for many years and he's, he's 
you know, fairly aggressive in what he's willing to to tolerate. And, you know, we put the brakes on and the safety measures in place, of course. But I know his box and I can look at a scenario and say, yeah, you know what? Um, this particular person would be a good fit for that scenario. Um, we have other people who, you know, maybe they're they don't like to lend in certain states or they don't or they don't like certain property classes. Um, most of the private lending, um, I think probably the most popular and most plentiful is single family residential fix and flip loans, which sometimes people call a hard money loan. Um, and again, again, it's, it's a, can be a nebulous description, right? Hard money typically is what we would call asset based lending. Okay. So when someone says a hard money loan, uh, typically what they're talking about is asset based lending. So we're not necessarily looking at their income, their W2s and pay stubs. Um, we're not doing a deep financial analysis on the borrower we're looking at the property and we're using equity in that property as a big part of the security. Now, when we underwrite a hard money loan, we're not typically saying, Hey, sign here. You're good. We're, we're underwriting their experience. We're underwriting the value of the property, their plan, their exit strategy, right? So we're going to look at it and Jason's going to come to me and say, Hey, I got this fix and flip and it, you know, here's the property address. And you know, Okay, so when it's fixed, what's it going to be worth? And we evaluate that. Maybe we do an appraisal or a broker's pricing opinion. We're, we're going to vet those numbers. Okay, here's what it's, he's buying it for. He's going to put this amount in it. D does that make sense? $100,000, uh, I'm going to put $50,000 into it. And I'm saying it's going to be worth dollars are there other properties in the neighborhood that are going to be worth that? Is it make sense based on the square footage, the bed, bath count, et cetera? Um, you know, and so we underwrite that process and we ensure that we have sufficient equity, um, you know, to, to make the deal make sense. Well, I, I appreciate you kind of walking through that. And, and I think it is, it's a very hard question to answer. Um, not because they're, they're so inherently different. It's, it's because there's so many similarities you know what I've what attracted me to private lending and hard money lending and and certainly you know those those terms can be interchangeably used sometimes or they they mean different things to different people. I try to look at it when I talk to people you know in in my circle of influences. It, it's really it's a loan that most traditional lenders don't want to write because it doesn't fit into their box, right? Do you make enough money to pay the mortgage? Can I validate your income? You know, you you make $8,000 a month, the mortgage payment's $3,000 a month, you're not riddled with debt. You know, it's just, it's a math formula and that's how traditional loans work and there's nothing wrong with that. But when you look at some of these investors, you know, they may try to buy eight or 10 properties. Well, certainly if you look at their income, right? Especially as an investor, it's already sporadic. It's not like a paycheck that, that you know, people that are employed get. And so banks say, you know, we, it's not that we don't think you're good. We just, we, we don't have a place for it in our, in our process. Right. And so lenders like MoneyStream fill a void because they're able to step in and say, Hey, let's, we will evaluate this on the merits of the deal as a whole. And so, you know, I'm a big believer in lending, you know, it's two parts, right? It's both the, the, the borrower's ability to pay, and then it's the the property's ability to provide collateral. And if you think about a loan, mm -hmm. as long as those two things are met, 
Um, it really doesn't matter what side you get comfortable on as long as the sum of both parts. And I think for lenders, traditional lenders, they want to be comfortable across the board. And, you know, what I think right. firms like like yours, Michael, is you can find comfort. And as a result, um, you get to play matchmaker, right, where you get to take Jason, my self-directed IRA funds, and let's call it a couple hundred thousand bucks. And you get to go look at deals and say, hey, this deal, well, you know, Bank of America is not going to touch it. Um, it's not because it's a bad deal. It's because, right, here's the, the mechanics. And so you're able to present that to people like me and say, hey, if you want to, to own this loan and generate this return and here's the risk profile, um, that's to me, there is no other asset class that allows me to evaluate a deal that way. And I'm not on a soapbox for it, you know, and, and I think in a self-directed account, people are free to be on the borrowing side, the lending side, you know, the, the equity side, the investment side. But it is so cool to me, right? Because I, I get this ability for, for someone like Michael to say, hey, Jason, here, if you want to put 100 grand in, this is a 10% return. This is the property. This is what they're putting in. This is after repaired value. This is what we think it'll sell for. You know, that gives a holistic picture to kind of start making some investment decisions, which is, is, is really a cool process. And let's, let's right. kind of take that idea and, and take it a step further. Like, what does a typical residential, you know, we'll call it hard money just for, for the sake of discussion. What does a typical hard money loan look like? You know, and I know you loan in, in all 50 states and you've got, you know, it, it, we could probably do 50 different uh, examples from state to state, but we're both in Florida. So we'll, we'll use Florida as kind of our core case. But what's that look like? If you were going to send it out to a potential investor to be on the lending side, right? What are you evaluating? What are you looking for? How do you get there? And then kind of what are you sending out that allows someone like me who's passive but wants to be a participant or a partner in the deal? What am I getting through that process? And, and what level of due diligence and work are you guys doing on my behalf? It's a, it's a great question. And so, um, you know, let's 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 talk about the, you know, first step. So we don't know everything about the deal up front. Um, we're going to get an inquiry. And so that inquiry is typically going to be coming from either a mortgage broker or lender or a realtor or directly from the investor. Okay. Um, and so let's call this a fix and flip deal. And so the first thing that is I look at one, can we make, is this going to be a potentially profitable deal? Okay. Did someone come to me and say, Hey, you know what? I'll only do this if you can give us a 7% interest rate, you know? All right. Well, I'm probably not going to, probably not going to, you know, that's not going to happen. So it may, that wouldn't be profitable. So number one, is it profitable? Is it profitable for my funding partner, Jason? Is it profitable for us? Right. Um, two, um, is it likely that they're going to perform properly? In other words, based on their experience, based on, you know, uh, and some of that's maybe, maybe less concrete, right? But how many deals have they done? Are they, is it a partnership? Is it a new guy partnered with, you know, uh, another investor who, and she's done, you know, 23 flips, right? So we're going to look at, is it safe? And then last, we're going to say the, um, you know, I call it the safety uh, or the bailout if they fail, comes in place, patient, the loan documents, um, you know, and enough equity in the property to to make 
make my funding partner whole if the, you know, I'm going to say, God forbid, you know, the worst case scenario happens. Are they protected? So is it profitable? Is it safe? Is it protected? I'm going to intuitively, I'll be able to sort of have an idea. At that point, we, we say, okay, well, let's move forward to the next step. We get a handful of simple pieces of information. I want to know the property address, the, the, what are they buying it for? What do they expect they can fix it up for, right? Their rehab budget. What's the after repaired value? So, you know, what do they think it's going to be worth once it's sold? And these numbers, a lot of times they're coming from the investor themselves. So we may look at this deal and we may say, all right, this investor has a lot, um, you know, so we're going to give him, we're going to offer this investor a little more leverage right? So maybe we'll do a 90% of the purchase. We always, my personal philosophy, we always do a hundred percent of the rehab. We give them the 90 for the purchase at closing. And it's a real estate closing title company, closing attorney, depending on the state, right? They're going to sign in Florida. They're going to go to a title company. They're going to close. There's title insurance policies, a closing protection left. You know, all, all of the standard documents that you would see on a traditional loan. We have a mortgage. Um, we have a promissory note. The A few things we have that you wouldn't see on a normal mortgage is we have a, a, a property use. I'm the investor. I'm never going to live in this property and I'm not going to use it for you know anything other than the intended purpose of this loan, which in this case would be a fix and flip. So no one's going to live in it and they can't rent it out. right? And we have a personal guarantee. We're lending to the entity. And then we fund the loan. We've coordinated with the title company. Loan gets funded at closing when all the signed, all the documents are signed, and we service and collect the payments. Um, investor says, "Hey, I'm ready for a draw." We have a process, an inspection process, you know, where they're providing receipts and documentation, evidence of the work that's been done, um, evidence that, of the money that they've spent, and we then send them that draw. And then uh, monthly payments come in the, you know, your portion of the payment gets sent to you money, you know, moves through, Oh, they're done. The, they're done. They put it on the market. They sell, um, their selling title company or the title company handling that sale will contact us, request a payoff. We do that. They send us the money and the funding partner gets their money back. Um, so that's a very fast, you know, simplistic version of it. Well, I, you know, it, I, I've been on on that side of the equation, and and I appreciate you walking us through procedurally, you know, kind of how it looks. I think maybe to summarize for our listeners, you know, the the idea of private lending is is really that you look like the bank, right? And and you're relying on your own underwriting because nobody should ever write a, a, a an investment ever without doing their own underwriting, right? Nobody should trust exclusively the, the underwriting of others, whether it's on a loan, on a property, on a business. Um, but ultimately, you get the ability to play the bank and, and the bank does. The bank goes out and, and finds deals and they, they make sure the deals make sense to them. And they send their money with, with not just hopes of getting their money back because we you know, want to follow a, one of my favorite Warren Buffett quotes is return of principle is a lot better than return on principle, right? So don't we don't get so lured in that we're making 11 or 12 or 20 percent returns that we forget that I still want my hundred grand back, right? That's critical. Um, so as a lender, you know, it puts right. you in a position to really evaluate a deal um, and truly become a bank. And, and there's a reason why if you drive into any major city, uh, you know, 80% of the the uh, the names that are on tops of the buildings are banks, 
Um, that's not by accident. That's by design. And so uh, I love the idea of being the bank. And, and I love the fact that there are firms like uh, Michaels and, and others that will do a lot of the heavy lifting, finding the investors, doing the first wave of underwriting, doing evaluation, negotiating, managing the paperwork. I couldn't do all those things. You know, I don't know the first half of it. Um, but what I love is that when that deal's packaged up and it's sent to me, I now get to do my own due diligence, whether it's a second set of due diligence, whether it's similar, whether it's validation, whether it's different. Um, and I get to say, you know what? I really like this deal. It works for me. Or I get to say, you know what? I don't know if it's a good or bad deal, but it just doesn't fit what I'm looking for. So um, definitely a, a really fun place to be. And I think a lot of people, they kind of think that being a lender is daunting. And, and I think if you're going to do it alone, it probably is, right? It, it takes a long time to understand how it works. Um, but working through people that uh, that can help find and vet those loans and do some underwriting uh, is a real game changer. So I, I couldn't encourage you guys uh, that are thinking about getting into the lending space to really take a look at it. Talk to, to, to people like Michael or, or firms like his and and find good partners and, and people that can help, uh, you know, underwrite and do some of the, the identification and due diligence uh, to at least get a deal onto the table. So um, from a time standpoint, we, we have covered so much. We've 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 elapsed uh, our overall time. So we'll uh, we'll bring today to a close, Michael. Thank you. Thank you um, for, for your time and, and your wisdom today. Um, we'll make sure all your contact info is in the show notes. So if anyone does want to reach out uh, to you and, and, uh, and ask any further questions or your firm, uh, they'll be able to, to do so. Um, Michael, last question. And this is something we ask uh, as part of our season two. Every single person before we let them off the show completely. Uh, this is just a personal question for you. Answer it any way you want. But Michael, help us. What keeps you up at night? I have, you know, I think everybody has responsibilities, right? Um, I'm the kind of person, and I was actually just speaking with my 19-year-old son about this yesterday. Um, I worry about other people first, and it's a mentality. Um, I don't know if you want to call it empathy or, but, but what would keep me up at night would be, you know, making sure or the or the risk or the concern. Um, about you know my employees families being provided for my funding partners you know having having success with their investments um you know our clients our borrowers um you know the people who we who trust us you know so for me and maybe this was genetically implanted in me you know as part of being an infantry marine you ask someone who they fight for um, you know, someone from who's been in combat and I've been in, in combat. Someone, you know, you ask, oh, are you fighting because you're patriotic? Are you, you know, you know what? At the end of the day, um, you're fighting for the people around you. You know, that's your, 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 you know, and, and so for me, I think it's, that's, that's my, that's my keep my, keep me awake at night is making sure that I'm providing the very best and the safest and the, you know, whether it's their goals of retirement or, you know, providing for their family, you know, that, that the people who I'm blessed to be surrounded with, whether they're clients or borrowers or, you know, or, or my staff, my team, um, you know, so making sure that I am giving them the very best of me. Well, that's a, that is, a, you know, it's an interesting philosophy and, and one that uh, is amazing when you hear the stories of how, 
you know, your, your, whether it be your upbringing, your time in, in, uh, in the Marines, you know, how that does carry forward and, and, and stays with you in both your personal and professional life. So thank you for sharing that. Michael, you have been fantastic. Uh, learned a lot. Appreciate having you here today and look forward to, uh, yeah, to having you on the show again. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jason. And, and I appreciate you. And, uh, obviously I appreciate Amy and your, and your team. Well, we appreciate that. And, and to our listeners, thank you for being here. Uh, we're, uh, we're glad to have you and, and uh, look forward uh, to keeping you on the, on the podcast train and listening to future episodes. If there's feedback or if there's topics that you guys would like to hear, be sure to send that to allaboutalts at newviewtrust.com. Hit the like, share, subscribe button, leave us a review, all that good stuff. Uh, but we love having you and we'll continue to, to Keep educating as best we can on how to be a good investor, find good strategies, and save as much as you can on taxes through the process. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks again. Thank you so much for listening. We hope the information within this podcast has given you the tools that you need to find your way to financial independence. We would love to partner with you on this journey. Text ALTS, that's A-L-T-S, to 407-708-1853 to learn more about how to get started today. Don't forget to follow us to make sure you don't miss a second of content, and we'll see you next week.